0: If you have your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Uh, this morning, we were going to look at uh, end of chapter 3 all the way to chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and I've entitled this section, Resolving Conflict. Now, this is a real relevant subject, I think, because we all know what's going on in our culture today, and by God's providence, it's interesting that we are dealing with this particular text in which we find ourselves. When was the last time you were involved in a conflict with somebody? What was your response? You say, well, I had a fight on the way to church with my spouse. By the way, that often happens, doesn't it? When you're in this spirit of trying to worship God, you end up getting a conflict. Was it with your kids, your boss, maybe a coworker? Or today, social media is a medium that's used and it often generates a lot of conflict and a lot of hatred. What was the source of the conflict in which you found yourself? Now, we have to understand several facts about conflict. This is very important. Number one, conflict is inevitable. You're never going to be able to avoid conflict completely because we live in a fallen world with fallen people. Even Christians are going to engage in conflict. Secondly, conflict could either be beneficial or it can be destructive, depending on how you respond to it. Thirdly, conflict resolution is not always possible. The Bible says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We may try to resolve conflict, but the other person does not want to. And then finally, conflict is like salsa, in that it's either mild, medium, or hot. Some of us have been in mild conflicts. Some of us have been in extreme conflicts. Now, notice what James says in verse 1, because really this is the crux of the section. James is writing to a group of beleaguered Jews who are suffering persecution. They've been dispossessed from their homes. And they were experiencing fights, just like churches do today. He says in verse 1, What causes fights? And the Greek word there literally refers to wars. What causes wars? Obviously, on a national or international level. And then he says, What causes quarrels? That would be personal skirmishes. He says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, why does he ask this question? Well, he did it in chapter 3, verse 13. He asked the question there, who is wise and understanding among you? He asked the question because he wants to get his Jewish readers to think, and he also wants them to identify the root cause of their sin and their conflict. In fact, we could take this question in verse 1 and make it more relevant and more specific for today. For example, what caused the War of Independence in America, the Civil War, or World War I and II? What causes destructive uprisings, violence, looting in our cities and in our communities. James could say, what causes acrimony and division within the government and within politics? What causes church, churches to split? What causes conflicts in marriage that lead to divorce and the breakup of the family? What causes dissension in the workplace? Or we could say today, what causes acrimony on Facebook, Twitter? and social media outlets. Now, what James does here is he doesn't give us 10 things, practically speaking, that we can do to resolve conflict. And I'm not against steps. I think they're helpful. But what James is going to do in this section is he's going to go right to the root of the problem. He doesn't get into all these different explanations. He goes right for the juggler, and he explains the root of their conflict. Now, we don't know exactly the nature of the conflict that they were dealing with, what was causing it but he's going to show us the source. And here's his point. If you deal with the root in conflict, you'll deal with the fruit. Years ago, I had this bump grow on my neck, and so I decided to go to the dermatologist to find out what was going on. And so he looked at it, said it was benign, no no problem. So he went ahead and put a robe on me, and he took his needle, and he stuck it in there to numb it. And then he began to cut it out. And I don't want to go into all the graphic details. It was gross enough. And so he sutures it back up when I'm done, and about four weeks later, the sucker comes back. And I'm thinking to myself, hmm, something's wrong here. So I go back to the dermatologist, he's looking at it, and he says, you know what, when he cut it open, he said, we didn't get to the root. And so he took his pliers, and he's yanking my neck as he's trying to get the root out. Finally, when he got the root out and he sutured it back up, never had a problem. You see, if you deal with the root, you deal with the fruit. And that's the key to conflict. If you find out what the root is, you're gonna be able to deal more readily with the fruits that emerge from it. And so how do we deal with conflict? How can we avoid conflict if it's not necessary? How can we uh, dispel it, or how can we solve it? He gives us several suggestions. Let me share them with you this morning. Number one, you must reject sinful attitudes. This is a root cause. Sinful attitudes are often the root of most conflicts. Now, sometimes it's just honest disagreement. You see it your way, they see it their way, and we have differences, and that's fine. But as Christians, we must address the root cause of sinful attitudes that often lead to conflict. Think in your marriage. Sometimes it's just you and your partner disagree. It's nothing sinful. You just see it differently. But a lot of times, there are sinful attitudes that begin to rear their ugly head that causes conflict within the marriage or within our culture. Look at chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. And again, we often think that this is another section. Whenever you see a chapter division, you assume it's a new topic. And obviously, there is a new subject here in chapter four, but the whole theme of conflict is dealt with in chapter three at the end and also into chapter four because he's going to be dealing with a lot of relational attitudes. But notice the sinful attitudes in verse 14 of chapter three. He says, But if you Christians harbor bitter jealousy, not just jealousy, but bitter, it has a bitter root. You're jealous of somebody else, you're envious. He says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, we all struggle with selfishness. Selfish ambition would be self-promotion. That's what they were engaging in. He says, if those two things are in your heart, do not be arrogant. There's another sin of pride. He says, don't be arrogant and lie against the truth. No, I'm not like that. No, you're the problem. I'm never the problem. You see, that's arrogance and pride. He says in verse 15, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, it's part of the world system, it's natural, it's part of man's fallenness, and it is demonic. These sinful attitudes. And then notice what he says, the upshot is in verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, he says you're going to have disorder. You know what that means? Instability in society, instability in relationships. Do we not see that going on now because sinful attitudes are running amuck in people's hearts? This word disorder can refer to uh, confusion, and the Greek word interesting means political anarchy. Isn't that interesting in light of what we're seeing going on today where people want to cast off all authority, they want to disrespect authority, and then he says another upshot is every evil thing. In other words, every other vice is going to come out of these sinful attitudes rioting, divorce, murder, theft, slander, gossip, slavery, treachery, rape, oppression, racism, name calling, revolution. See, that's what happens when we allow sinful attitudes to go unchecked within the human heart. Notice chapter 4 now, verses 1 through 2. He says, what is the source or the root of quarrels and conflicts among you? James goes right for the juggler in verse 1. Is not the source your pleasures? The Greek word means hedonism. You know what hedonism is? It's someone who makes it their chief end to pursue pleasure at all costs. We live in a hedonistic society. Why? Because the chief end of man is not to glorify God in our society. The chief end of man is to satisfy and satiate one's lusts. He says these hedonistic desires wage war in your members, in your mind, your will, your emotions. And by the way, we all have to battle this, don't we? just because we're Christians, we're not immune from it. The old man died. It was crucified with Christ. The old man's power has been rendered inoperative, but nevertheless, the old man rears his ugly head, and what happens is we can make pleasure-seeking the number one focus of our life rather than serving the will of God. He says in verse 2, as he continues on the sinful attitudes, you lust. This is not just sexual lust. It's, It's just a general lust for that which is illicit, You don't have. In other words, you want something because you don't have it, so you commit what? Murder. And we know what's behind murder. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, there is hate and there is anger there. And by the way, this is true not only physically. When somebody wants something, like we're seeing in these riots, I want what I want, and if you block me from getting it, I'm going to murder you physically or I'm going to murder you uh, verbally. I was reading a story just three weeks ago about a CEO who started a company in California. The company grew. It was doing great. Three of his employees evidently got envious and jealous, and so they kidnapped him in the middle of the night, took him out, and they killed him. Why? Because they were envious, they were jealous, they wanted what he had, and therefore they murdered him. And that's exactly what James says here. He says, you are envious, verse 2, and cannot obtain. So what do you do? You fight and you quarrel. I want something, and if I don't get it and you block what I want, I am going to fight with you. Verse 6, he gives another sinful attitude. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the what? Proud. You see, pride in the human heart, often keeps us in conflict because we're not willing to listen to one another. We're not willing to apologize. It's my way or the highway. Notice verse 11. He gives another one. He says verse 11, do not speak against one another. They were speaking ill will towards one another. Brethren, he who speaks against a brother, here it is, or judges his brother. See, judgmentalism. Now, we're called to judge in the sense that we're called to discriminate. We're called to discern good from evil, right from wrong. That's biblical discrimination. But this is unbiblical judging. This is when I judge people based on the externals, their socioeconomic status, their skin color, their race, how they look. See, that's sinful judging. And so if we were to summarize based on what James said here in chapter 3 and 4, here are the sinful attitudes that are often rooted within the heart of man because man is a sinner by nature and by choice. And even though he is a Christian, if he's not ruled by the Spirit of God, these sinful attitudes will emerge their ugly head and you will have conflict. Here are the sinful attitudes, jealousy, lust, envy, selfishness, pride, hatred, lying, pleasure-seeking, anger, judging. And then I would add this, fear, insecurity, indifference, impatience, and unkindness. See, if we want to deal with conflict in our life, we got to deal with the root, James says, which is these demonic, worldly, fleshly attitudes. That's where they come from. Now, obviously, we know about the recent unrest that's going on, and the police officer and we all saw this video, we saw what he did. Now, here's the question. Why was there conflict between this man and the police officer? Obviously, there are other things going on there, but ultimately, that police officer, and I think most Americans agree with this, it's irrefutable evidence, that he mistreated him, ultimately leading to his death. Why did he do that? Sin in the heart, pride, oppression, racism, That what was going on in his heart, you see, and that ultimately led to him murdering this man, as James said, and it led to the conflict. Now, obviously, uh, George Floyd may have done some things. I know he didn't resist arrest, but there may have been some other things prior. But ultimately, what the officer did was wrong, and we condemn what he did what is wrong. Sin in the heart. On the other hand, when you notice the rioting that's going on in our culture, not the peaceful protesting, I think none of us here have a problem with that. But when you see the looting and the pillaging, I just read this morning in between services, another cop just got ambushed and killed. See what is going on here? These are individuals that are not interested in social justice, they are interested in venting their hate, they're interested in venting their envy and their jealousy. And you see, that's sin in the heart. That's why if we're going to see a rectification of this in our culture, we can't deal with symptoms. We have to deal with the root of the issue, which is Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can transform the human heart. And when he transforms the human heart, we see people the way God sees them. And by the way, we're always going to have racism. It'll never go away. Why? Because we live in a fallen world with fallen people. But the more we preach the gospel, the more that people are transformed, potentially there is greater reconciliation. And I say potentially, you know why? Because listen, there are some racist churches. And you show me a racist church, I'll show you a dead church. Because listen, that is not to be in our heart. And so here's the question you got to ask yourself. If you're in conflict with somebody, your spouse, ex-spouse, boss, your child, Whatever it is, you need to ask yourself this question. Am I the root of the problem? Is it my sinful attitudes? Now, I know sometimes that's hard to tell because it's gray. You know, did I overstep the line here? Did I get in the flesh? But in humility, we all have to ask this question. Is the root of the problem in all of my conflicts my own sinful heart that I need to own up to? I need to confess, and I need to get it right with that person. You say, no, it's them. Maybe it is them. Now, you could try to diffuse it, even though they may be the problem, and we've all dealt with people that they are clearly the problem. They just have immature, sinful attitudes. But that's the key. You say, well, how can I root those sinful attitudes out? Because listen, they wage war on our members, do they not? We all struggle with these attitudes to a lesser degree, or not? You have to be in the Word of God. It is so critical that you and I are meditating on the Word of God. The Word of God is the mind of God. And when you meditate on the Word of God, you are getting the mind of God, and you're seeing life from His perspective. That's wisdom. And as you imbibe the Word of God and let it dwell within you richly, Colossians chapter 3, you're going to think the way God thinks. You're going to be controlled by the Spirit. See, being controlled by the Spirit is not a mystical thing. It simply means to let the Word of God dwell within you richly. And as you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going uh, to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. See, those are all godly virtues. And listen, you got to hang around Christians, not that we don't reach non-believers, but we have to hang around believers that are going to build us up because bad company corrupts good morals. And so the first way to deal with conflict in your relationships, examine your heart, is it sinful attitudes in my heart? I was listening to a preacher this week, and he said that he saw this gentleman pull off a car dealership lot. He had just bought the car. And evidently, the guy who just bought the car, he evidently cut somebody off. And these two cars ended up driving ahead of this uh, guy who bought his new car, and they cut him off to where he couldn't go anywhere, and the two guys got out of their car. They must have been friends. And they took soda pop cans, they clicked them open, and they poured soda pop all over his car. This is his new car. See, this is our culture. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of sinful attitudes. There's a second thing you and I must do if we're going to resolve conflict or diffuse it, and that is this. We must cultivate godly virtues. It's not enough to reject the negative attitudes. We must also cultivate godly virtues. Verse 13 of chapter 3, James asks this question, Who among you is wise and understanding? The Jewish people thought that they were wise because they had the word of God. The Gentiles didn't, so they claimed to be wise. And he says, listen, you could talk all day, that you are a person of wisdom and understanding. But as John has said, wisdom is translated in our everyday life. He says, let him show it by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. There it is. One of the godly virtues that we need to cultivate is good godly behavior, our deeds. Our deeds of righteousness, our deeds of service. And he says we're to do it with the gentleness of wisdom. What does that mean? It means to have a gracious spirit, to be a meek person, power under control. You're not vengeful. You're not a retaliatory person. My friend is in Philly. He's a cop there. And we were on the phone this week talking. And he said, Mike, you would not believe what is going on there. He says, I'm in West Philly. And he says, bombs are going off. And he says, I got hit with a brick. And he says, I am mentally drained. He says, because you sit there, and he said, all day, he said, people are in your face, or at certain periods of time, people are in your face constantly dispensing expletives. And he says, you can't do anything. And he says, it's just there all the time. Now, Christian, how would you respond in that situation? Bless and not curse. Now, if somebody violates the law, you are responsible by God to deal with that person who violates the law. People that want to say get rid of police and government, uh uh-uh, that's biblical. Romans chapter 13, God uses police and government to restrain evil. He has ordained that. But he says it's very difficult to maintain a Christian attitude when you have all that vitriol coming at you. Notice what he says in verse 17. Here are some more godly characteristics. Here he's talking about God's wisdom, not the world's wisdom, verse 17, but the wisdom from above from God, is pure. Why is it pure? Because it's based on God's word. It's based on truth. And by the way, that's why you are to show grace, you are to be a peaceable person, as he says in verse 13, a gentle person, but you're not to do it at the expense of truth. You have to balance love and truth in all of life. If you have all truth and no love, you have hopelessness. If you have All love and no truth, you're going to have anarchy. And so you have to balance the two. He says the wisdom from above is peaceable. That means you're a peacemaker. That means you are loving towards other people. He also says gentle. That means fair, moderate, forbearing. You're courteous to other people. Reasonable means you're teachable. You're compliant. You're submissive. You're not stubborn. Selfish, it's my way or the highway. Now, does this mean you don't have an opinion? Does this mean you have to kowtow to everybody? You're a doormat? No. Again, there's the balance of love and truth in every situation is a different situation. You gotta weigh it out. I can't give you a list and say, when you're in this situation, you need to be truthful. When you're in this situation, you need to be loving and submissive. It's a case by case basis. He says you're full of mercy if you're controlled with God's wisdom. Notice if you're a merciful person, you don't give people what they deserve. You withhold punishment. You're forgiven. You see how all of these godly virtues enhance relational harmony? He says also the wisdom from above is good fruits. Now that could be just a general category of serving others, blessing others. Whatever you do to help relationships, that's good fruit. He says unwavering. That means you're impartial and you're not divided. You know what that means? You're not a racist. See, a person that has racism in their heart, hatred in their heart, they're not unwavering. The word means to be impartial. And then he says, without hypocrisy. You know what that means? Don't be two faced. Don't be talking to people very nice and then talk behind their back. That creates dissension. And then he ends verse 18 with these godly attributes. He says, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, you need a person just like a farmer. You keep sowing seeds of peace, you're going to reap a harvest of righteousness. And again, we could add the fruits of the Spirit to this list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. You see, it's not enough just to reject the negative attitudes if we're going to resolve conflict. We have to cultivate godly virtues. And that could only be produced by the Holy Spirit. We have to be word-saturated. We have to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we have to cultivate these attitudes. Yes, the Holy Spirit produces them, but not apart from my choice. I remember years ago, I grew up in South Florida in Miami, and I would sometimes, I don't prefer to go to football games I like to watch it in my living room because you can see the replay, and I could eat all the food I want, and I could go to the bathroom when I want, and I have to wait in long lines. But I was at a game. I can't remember if it was the Miami Dolphins or the Miami Hurricanes, and I decided to go to the concession stand and buy a $12 hot dog. You know those hot dogs that are 12 bucks? And so I'm sitting there, and there's a long line, and there's two guys behind me that start in a ruckus. Now, when the line is long, you want to get in and get out. And so I heard them, and they began to bicker with one another. The guy said, look, I was here before you. The other guy said, no, I was here before you. They probably were inebriated. And they started to go, and I thought, ooh, this is going to break out into something, and I'm nearby. So I turned around to both of them, and I said, hey, guys, I said, how about both of you get in front of me? And they looked at me. No, don't, don't praise me because, uh, listen, I get in the flesh sometimes and I say things I shouldn't. Jesus gets the glory for that one. I don't take credit. But I'm just telling you, in that moment I was in the spirit and they looked at me and it totally diffused the situation. Boom. Gone. Evaporated. A gentle answer turns away wrath, Proverbs 15, but a harsh word stirs up what? Anger. We understand this. And so we have to cultivate godly virtues. There's a third thing we must do if we're going to defuse conflict and resolve it, and that is we must pray about our unmet needs and desires rather than fight with others. Do you know that most conflicts, it's usually because there are unmet needs and desires? Think about why there's conflict in our culture. The black community is saying, hey, we feel that we are being trashed. We feel that we're being mistreated by the police officers and by society in general. And then you got other people saying, hey, I feel neglected. Remember the widows in Acts chapter 6? Their needs were not being met, and so it created conflict. Whenever you have needs and desires that go unmet, whether they be good or bad, you're going to have conflict. Because if I block what you want, there's going to be conflict there. And so notice what James says here in verse 1 of chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is not the source the pleasures that wage war within your members? And then here is the issue in verse 2. You lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You see, if you block my need, I'm going to fight with you. You do not have because you do not ask. And, you know, we don't know exactly what they were fighting uh, For in the church here, it could have been over positions of authority, because in James chapter three he said, "Let not many of you become teachers, lest you incur a stricter judgment." In that day, being in the position of teacher was a position of clout, and so some of them were selfishly vying to be in these positions of leadership. It could have been some of them were poor, as we know from this letter. Remember, they were showing preferential treatment to the rich in chapter two; they were giving them the best seats in the house. And so some of them were trying to curry the favor of the rich. Why? Because if you're poor and you can't feed your family, and this rich guy over here, if I can get him to like me, he's going to support my family. And so they were vying and fighting with one another in order to get their needs met. And we would understand that because most of us here don't lack. And so he's saying, look, guys, instead of fighting... He says in verse 3, you ought to be going to God in prayer and asking God to meet your need. And this is a good principle. Whenever you and I have needs and desires, we need to go to God and bring them to God. If we have unmet needs, what does the Bible say? My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory. If you're putting God first, God has got your back. He will take care of your needs, not necessarily your greeds. Also, if you have desires that are legitimate... Bring them to God. Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you what? The desires of your heart. Now, that's not necessarily a carte blanche promise, a blank check like the prosperity teachers teach, you know, name it and claim it. That's not what that means. But listen, God is our heavenly Father. He cares about us. And so many Christians don't bring their needs and desires to God because they think God's not interested in them, or He doesn't want to answer, or I prayed three times and God didn't deliver, so I gave up. No, how about praying for six months or a year? Keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking, but notice what James indicts them with here. He says, look, bring your needs to God rather than fight with each other, rather than manipulate relationships, bring your needs to God and your desires, but here's the condition. He says, you ask, verse 3, and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures, See, here's the problem in the condition. If we want God to answer our prayers, we have to meet God's condition, and that is we have to pray with the right motive. For example, you have a husband and wife, and the husband's always wanted a boat. He loves to fish. And here's the wife who says, We can't get a boat because we can't afford it. The husband says, Yeah, but I want a boat. You know that I love to fish. You know that I need alone time so that I'm not a bear to live with when I'm home. So I got to get this boat. The wife says, listen, we are up to debt in our gills and we cannot afford it. And so the conflict ensues. Why? Because the husband wants something and the wife says we can't do it. Well, what you ought to do is take it to the Lord in prayer. All right, we can't afford it, so let me start to pray and ask God to supply a boat. You say, no, you wouldn't do that. Absolutely. Now, God has the right to say no. And you say, God, I want what you want more than what I want. Lord, I'm presenting my desires to you. If you choose to say no, that's fine. But God, there's nothing inherently evil with a boat, so I'm trusting in you rather than have the conflict in the marriage. Or here's a wife who's living with a man who basically doesn't meet her needs. He's indifferent to the marriage. He just is not investing in the marriage. She can manipulate and fight with him and scream at him and nag at him, or she could take her unmet needs to the Lord and say, God, you know my husband. You know what he's doing. Lord, you see how selfish he is and vice versa. You see, bring your needs to God in prayer. That's exactly what God wants us to do, and we often don't do that because it's hard to do. We don't want to wait on the Lord. Now, listen carefully. Are you listening? Say amen. amen. One of the needs in our culture and desires is that there would be social justice. We all know this. And there's a lot of other needs and desires in our culture, some of them bad, some of them good. But listen carefully. You know how that we solve the problem? Is the church on its knees. That's not to say we don't do practical things, but listen, the way we solve the problem is through prayer, and this is what the church is not doing. So, I say it this way we are partially culpable for what's going on in our culture today. The church is. And here's the reason why we see our culture going to hell in a handbasket, and the church is somewhat indifferent. We're not seeking the Lord in prayer, we're not getting on our face before God and repenting, as we're going to see in a minute. You see, the way we resolve conflict in our families and other ways is, yes, we have to talk about it, we have to get practical, I get that, but are we bringing it to the Lord in prayer? And I'm afraid the church is not doing that. Why? Because we're too busy, we're too lazy, we have a lot of other things that we need to do. And James is saying, look, quit fussing and fighting with one another, bring your needs to God, and by the way, if you do, make sure that you're not just coming to God because you want to keep up with the Joneses. Because if that's your motive, God's not going to answer your prayer. If you say, God, I have a real need financially, and Lord, I want to start an internet porn business because a lot of people are making a lot of money, and I'm asking you in Jesus' name, do you think God's going to answer that prayer? Absolutely not, because it's wrong motive, and you're praying out of God's will, and it's not in Jesus' name. Well, there's a fourth way that you and I can resolve conflict or diffuse it, and that is this. Confess and repent of your worldly responses to conflict. We have to repent and confess our worldly responses to conflict. Now, James in verse 4 goes right for the root, and I'll tell you what, James does not mince any words here. He says, You adulteresses. Adulteresses. Why does he use the feminine here? Because Israel was the wife of God in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, we are the bride of Christ. He says. You guys are a bunch of adulterers. Do you not know that friendship, this isn't casual friendship, this is a deep affection and a love. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world, the world's system, the evil order, is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, wow, makes himself an enemy of God. In other words, you cannot love the world's system and love God at the same time, they are mutually exclusive. Now, we got to live in the world, but we can't be of the world. And if our values represent the world more than godly values, listen, you're a worldly Christian. You say, I'm not worldly. I don't drink. I don't go to the bars. I don't say foul language. But let me ask you a question. What are your values? How about your time and your money? Are you investing in the Lord's kingdom? Are you giving to the Lord? Are you resolving conflict the way the world does Or the way God wants you to. Now, we'll blow it. We're not perfect, but we get it right with God. And so James here says, stop being a bunch of spiritual adulterers. You know what adultery is? It means spiritually you are shacking up with another lover. See, a lot of Christians, they're fornicating with the world. They got another lover, which is the world. I remember years ago, I had a couple call me in New Jersey And they said, we need some counsel. We're having problems in our marriage. I said, okay. So I met with them. And I mean, the wife went off on a tirade. I couldn't believe it was coming out of her mouth, but she was frustrated. She says, I wanted a business trip with my husband and my kids. They're little kids. And she said, he was doing business. And then we got down to the lobby to check out. And uh, he told me to wait here. And so he said, I sat, she said, I sat down in that lobby for about an hour Well, come to find out, he was up in the hotel room having sex with another woman while his wife was down there waiting with the kids. I mean, she was ballistic in this conversation. You know what he's doing? He's committing adultery. You know, a lot of Christians commit spiritual adultery. Why? Because there is just as much divorce in the church today as there is in the culture. We resolve conflict much like the world. Listen to this one church I read about in North Carolina. This is just an example, and I'm not saying this is, this is uh, every church, but the article said this, authorities say a dispute over leadership at a church in western North Carolina turned from angry words, listen, to fistfights. About 30 police officers from five agencies were called to break up fight Sunday at Greater Zion Baptist Church in Fletcher, about 94 miles west of Charlotte. Henderson County Sheriff's Captain Jerry Rice says the brawl is under investigation and no one appears to be seriously hurt. He goes on to say, Rice says there were about 75 people at the church when police arrived, but not all of them were scuffling. Church members are divided over the recent ouster of the Reverend Lavanya as pastor of the church. The fighting apparently began over whether a vote should be held to reinstate him. And so you know what people resorted to? Fist fighting. What kind of stuff is that? And listen, you would be surprised, all over America, there are churches just embroiled in this kind of stuff. When I was in uh, Bible college, I had a professor say he knew of a church that was divided over Calvinism. Did God choose you or did you choose him? And so they had congregants who were split over this issue of human responsibility, divine election. Well, they had a potluck dinner, and this happened. A guy stood up in the middle of of the potluck, he held up a chicken bone, and he said, I want everybody to know here that it was foreordained before the foundation of the world that I hold up this chicken bone. And man, they had a scuffle, they were throwing food at one another. What kind of silliness is that? Now notice what James says here, because he's calling the church to repent over its worldly attitudes and resolving conflict. Verse 5, he says, do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. A very difficult verse to interpret in the Greek, and there's different interpretations. I won't take you through all of them, but what he probably is saying is this. God is a jealous God in a good sense, not in an evil sense, and he wants us all to himself. God doesn't want us to love the world more than we love him. He's a jealous God. And when we make the world system the object of our supreme affection rather than God, we are committing spiritual adultery. He says, therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud. People that are proud, they love the world more than they love God, but he gives grace to the humble. What does that mean? It means he gives forgiveness. It means he gives power. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then notice in verse 7, here is the repentance. This is one of the greatest sections in the Bible on confession and repentance. He gives 10 imperatives in the Greek, 10 commands. Submit, therefore, to God. In other words, address your worldliness. Stop justifying it. He says, submit to God, and that's where this all starts. If we're not submissive in our own hearts, we're never going to love God more than we love the world. Now, again, we're to be in the world but not of the world. But when I got one foot in Christianity and one foot in the world... And I'm a double minded person, as he says here God is opposed to you. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, verse 8, and he'll draw near to you. You see, God doesn't move. We are the ones who move. Cleanse your hands. That's your outward behavior, you sinners. And then purify your heart. You see, God's not just interested in dealing with the external, God wants us to deal with what's on the inside of us. He says, You double minded. He said that in chapter one, you're unstable. I got one foot in the world, one foot in Christianity. Well, I'm in church and I'm on fire for God, and then two months later, man, I'm back out in the world doing my own thing. Hey, where's so-and-so? Oh, they drifted from God. And then next minute, man, I'm real hot for God. I'm in the word, I'm in prayer. Next minute, you know what? I'm cold. You're hot and you're cold. Now, that's not to say you're not going to battle. We all do. But we got Christians in the church, listen, they are chameleons. They're blending in with the world. He says, be miserable and mourn and weep. There's not enough enough of that in the American church today. He says, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. He's not saying the worship service should be a funeral dirge, but what he is saying is there needs to be a brokenness over our worldliness in the American church. And if we wanna see revival, it's not gonna happen until this happens. If we wanna see racism, Uh, be eliminated, not totally, but if we want to make strides in that area, the church has to get right with God, and we got to start praying for our culture. We got to start preaching the gospel. He says, humble yourselves, in verse 10, in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. And so, do you resolve conflict the way the world does? See, we've got to ask this question, are we more like the world and our values and our ethics and how we resolve conflict, or is there a line of demarcation between us and the world? Because if people don't see a distinction between our life and the life of the world, our Christianity is irrelevant to them. Are we going to be perfect? No. We're going to blow it, but here's the issue. Are we willing to get it right? Well, there's one final thing that James gives us here as we close as to how we can resolve conflict or diffuse it, and that is this. We must learn to communicate effectively. And this one is important because we all know that our tongues have got us in trouble. In fact, a lot of what generates conflict are words. Chapter 4, verse 11 through 12. He says, Do not speak against one another. Now, some of you may have the translation slander. The Greek word is more of a general word, it means to have a hypercritical spirit, negative. It could include slander, it could include gossip. It could be a person that just is critical all the time. They were doing this. They were bickering and fighting. Their words were coming out that were not helpful. They weren't building others up, as Ephesians 4 says. He says, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. What does he mean by that? Well, the Old Testament talked about the law of love. And so when you're speaking evil of others and you're generating conflict with your words or your tweet, and by the way, not all conflict is bad. There is a place for truth. I'm not saying that if you're ever in a conflict, it's because you're sinning. Sometimes it's truth and truth divides. But again, it's how we say it, it's how we do it. They were violating the law of love, He says, but if you judge the law, that is the law of love, you are not doers of the law, but you are judges of it. In other words, you're putting aside the law of God, the law of love, because you now have become the judge and you are assassinating people verbally. Therefore, verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. In other words, God's the ultimate judge. He says, but who are you? to judge your neighbor with your words. And so here's the principle. Watch your verbal communication. How many couples, and I'm guilty of this, everyone here is guilty of this if you're married. You say something to your spouse that you shouldn't say, and what happens? Man, it's off to the races. It reminds me of the guy that was in a restaurant, and him and his wife sat down, and For some reason the waiter came up to him first and said, Can I take your order, sir? And he said, Sure. He said, I'll have a a New York strip steak. And the waiter said, Well, aren't you concerned about Mad Cow? He said, No, she can order after me. And you know, when I read that, I immediately thought, Are you ready to rumble? You see, it's our words. We say things that are nasty and critical. And we could be that on social media. Christians are to be known on social media for love and truth. you got to balance both. Some people are all love, and they don't want to talk truth because they're afraid it divides. But you got some Christians that are venomous with their words. It's all truth, but it's not dressed in love. And so we have to be careful. So let's summarize. What did we learn this morning? If you and I are going to resolve conflict, we're going to diffuse it. Reject sinful attitudes. That's the first thing. Secondly, cultivate godly virtues. Thirdly, pray about your unmet needs and desires rather than fight with others. Number four, confess and repent of your worldly responses to conflict. Make sure you're not a worldly Christian. Number five, learn to communicate effectively. Now, as we close, I'm gonna give you in rapid fire succession a couple of other principles here. Just mention them to help you with conflict. Number six, learn to overlook offenses. Stop wearing your feelings on your sleeve. Stop getting offended by everything. Well, you know, the pastor didn't notice my my colored toothpicks at the 4th of July picnic, so I'm offended. I mean, listen, some Christians are so petty. Learn to forgive and overlook offenses. Yes, you can call something out, and that's the seventh thing, address offenses if you can't let it go. If it gets in your craw and you can't let it go, you need to go to that person. Number eight, be honest, loving, and humble. Don't go to them and blast them out. Number nine, seek a win-win solution if possible. That's not always possible, but listen, that's what we're going to have to do with the divide in our country. We're talking at each other. We're not talking to each other. Number 10, accept being wronged in some situations to avoid hurting your testimony or that of the church. This is a tough one because you know what Paul says? They were litigating in Corinth. And he says, the fact that you're taking another Christian to court, he says it's a bad testimony. He says, why not be wronged? Why not be wronged? That one is tough, is it not? It's hard for us to be wronged by other people and to let it go. Number 11, watch your body language and tone. Is something wrong? No. Are you sure, sweetheart? Yeah, I'm fine. You ever been there before? The Cold War? Number 12, choose to forgive regardless. Learn to listen. Often, when I have fought with my wife, I want her to get done so that I can ransack her with what I want to say. And then finally, apologize when you are wrong. If you are wrong, say, you know what, man, I blew it. Now, sometimes it may take a day before you realize, you know what, the Lord, the, the Holy Spirit shows up and says, uh, you were the problem in this situation. You're like, oh, Lord, I got to go back to her again. And so you got to get your heart right. So let me ask you a question. Are you embroiled in some type of conflict right now with somebody? Are you the problem? You say, they're the problem. Well, then you know what? Pray about it. You say, I'm not going to rectify that relationship until they come to me first. Well, listen, you know what maturity does? Sometimes if you know someone has something against you, what did Jesus say in Matthew 5? Go to them and try to get it right as far as it depends on you. But if they don't want to get it right, then you move on. So I want to encourage you, be a biblical, spirit-filled Christian. That's how we deal with conflict. Let's pray.